What's going on, everybody? Welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, episode 288. And uh, if you're watching this, again, I know most people listen, very few people watch, but for those who might be watching, you see that I've got like this orange lighting behind me right now. I have the power in my study to uh, adjust lighting to the lighting that I like because uh, I'm all about lights. I'm a light dude. I don't know if you're one of those people that loves like a dimmer in every room and the ability to do multiple colors in every space. That's me. Uh, and so I have this orange hue behind me today because it reminds me of sunrise and sunset, both of which I have not really seen in a little while because we're in the dead of the winters of the Pacific Northwest, which the only color that shines all day long for certain is gray gray or black. So I decided, you know what? I want to be reminded of the sunrise sunset. Hence, that's what's behind me. But that's not the topic of the day. The topic of the day is something that, man, I don't do very often. I don't know why I don't do this, but uh, there's probably a number of reasons for it. But I thought, hey, let's talk about the book of Revelation. Yes, the book of Revelation, not Revelations. When you read the title, it doesn't have an S on the end. It's not many revelations of Jesus Christ. It's one revelation of Jesus Christ. And I'm not typically like a book of revelation guy in one sense and very much I'm like a book of revelation guy, but in a completely different sense. And so I thought, why not deal with that today? And maybe in that journey, we can figure out how it pertains to being an everyday missionary, because I actually think that's the function of the book. In many ways, it has much more of a witness uh, outreach orientation than it does really an end of the world, the beast that rises out of the sea, the Antichrist that comes from Europe or whatever other thing you've been taught growing up. Uh, maybe we'll talk about a little bit of that today too, but I really think it has a lot more to do with sustained witness in a problematic world than it really does about what happens at the end of this world as we know it. So very different thing there. Now, as I get into this, this is uh, kind of going back to something I said a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning. I said, I am one of the weirdest Christians that there is kind of alive on planet Earth right now. And some people who know me would say, yeah, we've known that for a long time. We're so glad you finally figured that out. But uh, I'm weird because when it comes to kind of that internal orientation of where my kind of my brain heart interests gravitate toward when I read the Bible, for example, um, I'd say first and foremost is the Gospels. And and I know there's a debate around some of this, but I'll see if I can clear this up a little bit. Um, I really do. I've done this before. Uh, I have read just the red letters of the Gospels, even skipped the black letters and just read the red letters. In fact, one of these days, what I want to put together is literally just the red letter edition of the Gospels, because even that journey is really fascinating. And I know, you know, people say, but the black letters are inspired too. And I don't disagree, but at the same time, what I always think is really important for us to kind of remember, especially as Protestant Christians uh, who have a very high kind of view of their understanding of the Bible, uh, I say of their understanding because I think other traditions have a high view of the Bible too. And I think it sometimes sounds a little bit more proud on our part, like we have a higher view of the Bible than the Catholics or the Eastern Orthodox or whoever. I just think we we tend to think we have a higher view, but in our tend to thinkedness of higher views, um, we, we kind of focus on all the letters are the same. And, and I push back on that a little bit only from the perspective of the book of Hebrews, which is black letters, by the way. Uh, it makes the point that God had spoke through the prophets, which was good. But now in these last days, he's spoken through his son and that's better. And I think if you were looking at the entirety of the Bible, uh, it should be the idea that, hey, the fact that God verbally came and spoke, those things should get the bulk of our attention first and then everything 
everything flows out of that. In other words, the red letters are the driver of the story. The black letters are commentary on the red letters, both in the gospel accounts and coming out of that into the New Testament before that in the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures, Christian scriptures. I prefer that labeling a little bit more, but I know it's more common to call it old and new. Um, But those red letters are profound. In fact, uh, recently I was just speaking on Deuteronomy and I was talking about the Ten Commandments. And that is the only place in all of, of, of history that is recorded where we see the actual finger of God wrote the text, so to speak. So etches it into stone. Those are the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Uh, that's the only time God ever writes. Every other time he's doing it by proxy. Somebody else is doing the writing. The next closest approximation to that is the gospel accounts where somebody else is writing, but the recording God's words being verbally spoken out loud. Hence, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in some way, either because they were eyewitness to or because they investigated uh, eyewitnesses who were there and then they recorded what the eyewitness accounts were. That's kind of the secondary time in which God is is bringing actual letters and formation of words to bear in the human context. And then after that, it's the Holy Spirit guiding, working, inspiring people to write the black letters from there. I know that's a long-winded way of just saying, you know what, for me, I go, the Gospels are the mountain peak of God's revelation to people. And I think that means that is the first priority. What we see in Jesus, what we hear from Jesus, what is displayed in Jesus becomes very much the gravity that we want to then be drawn into and live abundantly out of that because that's exactly what he came to do, to give us a model of how to live, how to talk, act, react, do all that stuff, how to give ourselves away for the betterment of the flourishing of the world, which again goes all the way back to God's agenda. He wants to bless every family. He wants all the nations of the earth to be blessed, every family of the earth to be blessed, every family to be touched by who he is. Is and the person of Jesus. That's why we should be really, really invested into those red letters. Those should saturate our lives. And we realize the black letters are commentary on the red letters. That's just a way of looking at interpretive, the interpretive task, right? Um, other people might look at it a little bit differently and they just flatten the whole thing. I get that. I'm a Protestant. I understand how it happens. But for me, I kind of go like, man, that's the pinnacle. The black letters are still of God, still inspired, but they're commentary on the red letters in some capacity, right? So kind of got that. So for me, then I go, the gospels are my first launching point. That's the place I'm most drawn. Next, however, is rolling backward. In other words, I don't go and then acts and the epistles and everything else. The next favorite batch for me goes back into the Hebrew scriptures. Um, Ecclesiastes is my number one favorite in the, uh, the Hebrew Testament because it's a dude that's being very honest. Like he has all the wisdom of the world. Uh, Proverbs is very much a um, pie in the sky. If the world was a perfect place, then you do this, it'll always be good. You do this, it'll always be bad. Almost like it's formulaic, right? So it's idealized formula. But then later Ecclesiastes rolls in and says, but listen, we know that that idealism does not really play out like you would think. Here's how life really is. The people who do what Proverbs says, you know, like if you do this, you'll be blessed. He goes, ah, those people sometimes just get punched in the face. And then the ones that it's supposed to be they're cursed, they end up becoming rich and powerful, successful and well-known. And he's like, it's just not fair, right? So I don't know what to do with that. It's matter of fact, I love what one rabbi said about kind of understanding God in Hebrew scriptures that they said, uh, God is random. <laughs> you know, they're just like, you just never know. Like God has these principles and programs and plans in place. And you go like, then if I do the formula, it's always going to pay off. And they're like, yeah, 
God is random on that. We don't know what to do with all of that. God is good. God is kind. But God is not predictable. Therefore, formulas don't always work. Hence why I love Ecclesiastes. After that, I would say I really dig the first five books, the Torah of Moses. And I think because in there, you see the cycles of life, right? What you ultimately get out of that is cycle. And then the rest of the Hebrew scriptures just demonstrates that cycle. So you get the foundations of human nature and human brokenness and messiness and it's just a wash rinse repeat model right so god has the best we don't always pursue the best over and over and over again and then the rest of the hebrew scriptures just play that out and how life can grow to a a, a place of deep decay because we're not actually pursuing what god's best is because as humans we're just not good at that right so then there's that And then after all of that, then I bounce back into the Christian scriptures. And I think for me, just again in the confession phase, because why not do it that way? um, I would say I uh, would be Acts. And I would say it would be Peter and John and Jude and James, their letters, then Hebrews. And then last is Paul for me. You know, I mean, I like I dig Paul, um, but but I would say that's the the tail end of like my g- drawn to go to favorites is Paul's stuff. Now, again, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit didn't do all of this and all of these people. That's not my point. I'm just saying when it comes to kind of like the flavors of the Bible, that's kind of the order of flavors for me. But that was a long winded way to get to Revelation because I'm not sure who to 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 kind of peg as the author of Revelation. I mean, we know it's John. Which John, we don't know. That That's a big hanging chad, if you go back to the history of life in America. That's a big hanging chad for me. I'm not sure which John wrote it. But one of the reasons I uniquely like Revelation is because if you read it with kind of a scholarly mindset, not with kind of like a fortune teller, crystal ball, newspaper in one hand, Bible in the other hand, how is this playing out today? But you actually read it with a literary eye, you will discover very fast that it is a deeply Hebrew Testament laden image work. In other words, it has so many references, not to the parts of the New Testament, but parts of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, that you almost need to be really thoroughly knowledgeable about the Hebrew world, about those works of God in the Hebrew scriptures to understand what Revelation is getting at because it is just borrowing repeatedly from the Hebrew text. And so if we don't do that and we're just kind of like, what's the future foretold here in you great work of God, we miss that actually it is kind of doing commentary Uh, to the Hebrew people based on Hebrew scriptures and in some ways about Hebrew problems. But in that then it shows again that cyclical model of what's going on. And that's one of the ways we then read Revelation. We don't read it linear. We really shouldn't at least. We should read it as a series of cycles or you might even say it kind of telescopes out a little bit where there's overlap between the different sections. They kind of drop back, go forward, drop back, go forward. And if you took that and then put it in a loop, you have a back forth looping model that is the overall literary structure of that particular work. And so So while there's all kinds of imagery is and all kinds of referent to the Hebrew Testament, while there's all sorts of things as far as numbers and measurements and things like that, you're like, what is all of this about? Well, at the core of it, it's an apocalyptic piece of literature. And what that is saying is at the center of that is pretty much one base message that you want to walk away with. And so like a poem that has all sorts of different, you know, kind of like color and 
tone and texture to it and says a lot of words. A poem is not so you walk away with more words than are in the poem, but rather you walk away with one idea from the poem that was said in a very beautiful, colorful kind of way. And that's exactly what Revelation's trying to do. And I think at the center of that, then, what is that message? Is that, listen, in all of life, there is really only two decisions. You're either team Jesus or your team other. And that's it, right? Team Jesus or team other. Or as uh, I think it was Scott McKnight in his work on Revelation, he says it's either being a member of team dragon or team lamb, right? Which is, those are some of the images there in the book of Revelation. And, and so in that, that's kind of the dividing line. Are you going to do things as the lamb does those things? Or are you going to do things as the dragon does things? Because what Revelation's getting into is that's always been the battle. The battle for all of time, since the beginning of recorded human history, is are you going to be lambish or are you going to be dragonish? Because that is always the, the thing that's before us. And if there's anything we know about human nature, it tends to lean toward dragonishness, right? Like the aggressive, superior, powerful, fire-breathing, kind of foreboding dragon force is the thing that is a part of human nature. And we see it in the world all the time, every day. We see it in the nations of the world all the time, every day. Everybody's jockeying for their position. Everybody wants power. Everybody wants to expand their power. Everybody doesn't want to be in the position of weakness or folly or meekness or mourning or grieving or poverty. So they go to this really high level of, I want strength. I want security. I want power. I want might. And that's team dragon kind of stuff. And that's what Revelation's getting at, which is why it's odd that the hero of Revelation is a slain lamb. So lambs are not known for their um, amazing predatorial skills. They're not known for their incredible defensive power and posture. They're known for their simplicity. They're known for their weakness. They're known for their dependency. And then all the more, it's a slain lamb, right? Like you're like, so let me get this straight. It's a dead like, I mean, we even say sheepish for a reason, right? Like, it's a dead sheepish thing that has been risen again. And the whole idea there is the way that Team Lamb does things seems upside down and backwards to the power structures of the world. And yet that's how stuff is to get done. So the nations will rage. The nations will fight. The nations will seek wealth and power and strength. The nations will raise up their gladiator leaders their gladiator politicians who are going to enter into the arena so they can defeat the foes. And it's all about dragon versus dragon super battles all the time. And then Revelation says, but... The people of God are meant to live like the lamb. The people of God are meant to think like the lamb and make a difference in the world like the lamb who doesn't use power and prestige and might and those things does it very different. And that then, my friends, is why I'm drawn back to the red letters to go. If Revelation says be like the lamb because you're playing for team lamb, then we need to go back and look at what team lamb is all about. And you go back and look at the lamb. Right. And I think that is kind of the value for me today in saying why is Revelation important? It forces us to go back into the Gospels. It forces us to kind of think through, yeah, what was G Jesus' strategy? What was the game plan? Like, how did he go about stuff? And one of the things I love about the ministry of Jesus is it reminds me of just how in this world uh, the gospel message really is. This is kind of one of those things that's kind of dear to my heart. And I think sometimes in our evangelical spaces, we lose it because we were all kind of reared on the idea of it's about heaven and hell. 
Uh, we were even reared on the idea, much of us in Revelation, that it's all about the rapture uh, and it's going to take us away from this crap hole and take us to the place we want to go. And so everything became very not of this earth oriented, but rather once we can get past this earth, once we can skip this earth and get to the earth we all want, then that's why we're doing everything that we're doing. We're doing it for the afterlife or the next iteration of life. And yet what I see in the Gospels of Jesus is he's like, no, I'm trying to clean up the mess in this life, this world as it is right now. And I think that is still much of our calling, right? This is why in part I'm post-millennial, right? I think things are getting better and better by the advancement of how the gospel impacts the world. Even I think I, I shared this recently in one of my Sunday messages that uh, when you go back and look at the promise to Abraham, Paul says that's the gospel, that the families of the earth will be blessed, that's the gospel. So the gospel isn't simply about my soul getting out of hell, going to heaven because Jesus died and rose on the cross. That's like a, that's, that's the mechanism of transformation. But then the purpose of transformation is investment, right? To do the very thing that Jesus is wanting to do, which is restore this world, heal this world, bring flourishing to this world, which says this is why we need to be engaged in all the different layers of our, our society as followers of Jesus, playing team lamb with the disposition of team lamb, because that is an opportunity for us to then display, here's how Jesus really does matter to everyday life. This is why I say life is better with Jesus, because Jesus wants to make life better for people. And I know some people go, that sounds trivial or trite, or don't you see the suffering and persecution? Yes, I do. And even in that, when we do it like team lamb, that makes life better. It makes life better. I mean, this is why I do think sometimes we forget that persecution has actually always been one of the great primers to uh, kind of like uh, revival movements, right? Where it's like when people who hate the lamb are hating on those who follow the lamb and those people are loving those who hate the lamb and his followers, that transforms them into lamb followers who love the lamb. Hopefully you track with all that, right? But in other words, they, they see something that is undeniable. They see the calm, love, kindness, and compassion of the lamb-like people in the face of dragon aggression. And they say, that's compelling. See, because I think that's the stuff that we as everyday missionaries want to start tapping into more, that where we are most compelling is not advancing sexual ethic, is not and making sure we have super airtight theology, is not and making sure we're really good at attendance at church and reading our Bibles and, you know, those kinds of things. Those are awesome things. I'm not sliding those for a second, but I go... That that's not the stuff that people go, wow, that's different. They go, well, that's what religion does. But when we do these above and beyond things that are very lamb-like in a dragon world, then people go, that must be real because you can't fake that. Like you can't fake loving an enemy. You can't fake turning the other cheek. You can't fake showing compassion to somebody who wants to bring demise to you. So it's really when we lean into lambishness and get taken advantage of in that lambishness that then people that are Team Dragon go, wow, Team Dragon gets stuff done by power. These guys are getting stuff done by humility and by laying themselves down, by giving up their lives, which is the very center of discipleship, Jesus says, they're doing it that way. And I can't argue with that. See, that's the thing I'm realizing right now. There, there's plenty of fodder to be argued with. I was just reading the latest Gallup poll yesterday that says pastors have dropped even more in their trustworthiness in the United States, you know, kind of ethos uh, of things. And, and it's because there's, again, 
uh, monetary scandals, sexual scandals, power scandals, abuse scandals, all of this. And I know that's not the average church, average pastor, but it's a sample size of things. And then you link it to some of the other things that kind of evangelicals are getting known for. It's not like we're known for our otherness. It's like we're known for a type of earthly sameness. And this is why I think it's even more imperative that we lean into the lamish things, which is what Revelation is all about. Because its point is the cycles of life, it's always going to be power besting power and might besting might. And everybody does it and everybody can do it. And you can you, you can succeed at it, provided you're, you're just thuggish enough and you get the right thugs to be thugs for you. But that's the problem. Another thug will eventually rise up, pound the thug that was the one before them. And Jesus is like, and that's not how we get business done, man. It's just not how we get business done. We do it in this spirit of the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. And as we do that, we do that with faith, hope, and love as the driving agents behind all of that. Faith that says, you know what? I really believe this way is the right way. Hope that will actually change the world as we do it. And all of that is rooted in love because the way I really show I love God is I love others in the name of God. I love others the way God has told me to love others. I love them whether they love me or not. And the more I do that, the more I'm showing him. I trust your way. I trust your system. I trust the roadmap you've given. I trust this upside down backwards approach where I'm not going to use the stuff of the world and the things of Team Dragon to get the, the world to be what I want it to be, but rather I'm going to lean into this really dumb, almost counterintuitive, super backward idea of team slain lamb is the road to life. A slain lamb is the road to life. And if I lean into that life, then life is better, not just for me because I'm doing it the way he wants me to do it, but life is better for those around me. Because I'm being like Jesus to them. And even if they're not wanting to receive Jesus as I'm trying to be Jesus to them, I still get to be Jesus to them and they can see him testified to in that way. So it all just comes back to being like Jesus, thinking like Jesus, kind of like, like approaching every day saying, how would Jesus approach this day? Right When you go to the grocery store and there's a problem, how would Jesus respond to the problem? If you're in your car and somebody cuts you off, how would Jesus respond to that cutoff? If you're in your job space and there is a difficult manager or a difficult coworker or whatever, and you're having to deal with that, how would Jesus have you deal with that? Right, It's just letting Jesus be the markers, not our politics be the markers, not our American dream be the markers, not, hey, that I have rights and privileges and da 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 da, da. Like All that stuff is not the, the lamb-like way. The lamb-like way is a different kind of way. And I think that's what the world is desperate to see. I think they want to see that there's real power behind this thing. And that power is never unlocked unless we lean into team lamb. 100% all the way, right? saying, I, I don't want to do stuff like the dragon because that's going to be the thing that we're all drawn to. I, I mean, because part of what Team Dragon is, is just the American spirit, the American attitude. It's also the Russian spirit and the Russian attitude. And it's also the Israeli spirit and Israeli attitude. And it's also the Palestinian spirit and Palestinian attitude. In other words, any time it isn't doing it like Jesus is just Team Dragon. It's just Team Dragon every time, right? And so... While I know there is diverse ways and trying to figure out how to be like Jesus in this world, um, we still wanted to go out of our way to try to figure that out more, right? Like to, to say, I don't want to, um, I, I don't want to shy away from the tension of that. 
Like, I think it's hard. I mean, I want to be clear. Like, I push the Sermon on the Mount all the time, but I think it's hard. And I've had people ask me, like, well, what if this situation happened? Would you just sit back and let your family be killed or whatever? Like, you know, the hypotheticals, which are understandable. And I go, you know, probably in that time, I I don't know if I, there's probably many things in life where honestly, when I'm put in a pinch, I don't do Jesus's best. If I'm just honest, I think that's probably a lot of us, right? If put in a real pinch, uh, we're not going to do his best, but I don't want it to be like, therefore his best isn't real. You know, I'd rather apply the pressure that says we need to keep figuring out how to try to lean into his best, even when it's uncomfortable, or even if we're going to suffer, or even if we're going to lose or have loss, we got to still try to keep the pressure applied of what it means to be like him more, not, hey, I can excuse away what it means to be like him because you know what? I don't want to go with less, right? It's like, no, we just got to keep that pressure applied. Because I think the only way the cycle of revelation, which is, again, lamb versus dragon, the only way that cycle breaks is when eventually the world is aligned with team lamb. Until then, it's always going to be team dragon fighting versus the other team dragon kind of thing. And we're the only ones who can kind of break the cycle. And we have to break it as, as a block of of human beings. Like we have to all begin to lean into this more and more and more. And what I kind of see in the American kind of mindset of evangelicalism right now is I do admit I'm not I think there's leaning a, I, I, I just see more dragonishness than I see lambishness uh, at times especially in like I was talking about last podcast in 2024 is gonna be a political year and I think we're, we're gonna have a lot of negotiating with our faith in our politics in unhealthy ways like we're gonna be like you know what hey listen I just got to give up these certain things and those certain things and I gotta turn a blind eye to this and tamp down that and kind of lean into my anger, my frustration, my hate, my dislike of the other side to get what I think is a more utopian dragonish nation, I guess. Right. But we've got to resist that. We've got to resist that. I say, all right, how does Jesus do things? How does he want me to do things? Because the more I'm just putting that up as like my VR glasses, right? Or my augmented reality is putting on the kind of the Apple glasses thing and everything is seen through Team Lamb, everything is seen through the eyes of Jesus, the more I think it's going to shape our decisions. The more we make that a priority, the more I think we're going to lean into that priority and try to be the difference makers. And the more we're trying to be the difference makers, well, then the more we're going to be effective everyday missionaries.